Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and a fun episode today with Jamila Rizvi. Um, I didn't know Jamila before we sat down for this chat. Um, we had uh, chatted online and I knew her work. If you want to check out her work and all the links to that, I would go to jamilarizvi.com.au. That's a good place to start uh, where you can find out details about her podcast and her writing and her speaking. Uh we recorded this a, a few months ago, uh, but we were hanging on to the episode for a few reasons, but I'm really glad that it can come out this week. Um, there's some pretty full-on things that have happened in uh, Jamila's life uh, in the last year or two, and she details a lot of them in this podcast, and I was very grateful that somebody that I did not know that well was willing to come along and have this chat with me and be so open and honest about the challenges that she had been facing uh, and let me share those with you guys. So um, I just I just really appreciated it and I really loved spending the time in her company and uh, yeah, it felt like a great privilege to have this conversation with her. So uh, make sure you go and check out all this stuff and if you enjoy what you get out of this episode, make sure that you hit her up and let her know. As usual, share the podcast uh, if you can and um, rate it wherever you listen to it. If you can give it a good rating, that is incredibly helpful getting the podcast out there. This is an independent podcast. It is not owned by a big media organization or anything like that. Um, and uh, the best way to help uh, with this podcast coming out weekly, uh, you know, it's an interview show, an interview show that comes out uh, once a week, and we do it on basically your contributions and a couple of ads. Uh, the ads certainly don't cover... Uh, the major cost of the podcast, which is paying paying uh, podcast Mike and paying Michael, our US producer, who weaves it all together, and uh, paying jo- James Fosdyke, of course, for all his original art that he does for the podcast. One way you can help if you want some merchandise for this uh, from this podcast, then you can go to um, his Redbubble. If you go to Redbubble and follow the links to James Fosdyke, you can actually find some Willosophy merchandise on there so that helps cover the costs and another way that you can help is uh, contribute to the patreon patreon.com slash willosophy w-i-l-o-s-o-p-h-y um, contribute there for as little as a dollar a month um, up to as much as you really want to uh, as much value as you get out of this podcast and that will help us know that we have a certain amount of money there that can help me get to places where our guests are to record them book studios and pay everyone involved in this podcast uh, that would be great. So thank you very much for all that. Uh, the best way that you can support me, of course, is to come and see me do live stand-up. Uh, 2020 is going to be a big year. I am, I've am i been talking a lot on this podcast over the last year about uh, my struggles around where my stand-up fit into my life and what it was that I wanted to be achieving and how I wanted to feel about my stand-up. And I've come to some conclusions, which I'll go into more as the weeks go on. But I will say this, that... Um, I'm going to do three different shows and for three different reasons. And I think I'm going to get different things out of each of those experiences. And so instead of locking myself into one being the answer, I've decided that a combination of all three is actually the answer for keeping me engaged and excited and challenged and having fun and taking risks. Uh, so uh, we'll start with the taking risks. The taking risks is a show uh, called What You Talking About, Will?, and uh, what you're talking about, Will, is a completely improvised night of stand-up comedy. Now, I, I make up the entire show on stage, usually in the front row of the audience a lot, you know, chapters and people 
uh, you know, riff a lot, tell some stories, and it's all made up in the room. It is never to be repeated, and uh, it is completely different every night. They are the most fun shows that I do. They are also the most challenging, as you can imagine. Uh, they are completely exhausting to do, so I can only do a limited number of them, but I am going to be doing 10 of them at the Sydney Comedy Store, which is actually where these shows were originally born and the idea of these shows. They were originally uh, you know, constructed as uh, I, was, I was trying new material. Uh, that's what they were. They were work in progress shows. They were, But over the years, I've started to do them just as existing for the sake of existing and this year uh, is probably the biggest year for that well next year 2020 will be the biggest year for that because not only am I going to do 10 shows at the Sydney Comedy Store and those shows are uh, already quickly selling out because uh, obviously I've had an audience in Sydney who've seen them before and enjoyed them and I'm really pleased to say that uh, people are buying a heap of tickets to come and see it again which is brilliant and I know that some people come more than one night because of course you can because it's a different show every night and people like to see uh, you know, what the vibe is uh, from night to night and how different it is. But I am also this year going to be doing it at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Now, this is this is the big time. I'm going to be doing 10 shows. So 20 shows in total at the Comedy Festival. I'm going to do 10 of my show, We're Legal, from a couple of years ago, which is my most requested show, which is a show about me being arrested on the way to Wagga Wagga. And so I'm going to bring that show back for its last time in Melbourne, but uh, 10 shows. So if you did not see that or you want to see what that show is now you can come and see we're legal but if you want to come and see me make up an entire show on the spot in the comedy theater in melbourne you will have 10 opportunities to do that during the melbourne international comedy festival so those shows are now on sale um you can follow the links at comedy.com.au or on any of my socials to find out the details about that i am also doing a week of shows in brunswick heads of my uh, Will Informed show, which is a show that I will be touring to a lot of major capital cities in 2020. I am also touring Will Legal to a whole bunch of places in 2020. It's already on sale in Wyong, uh, as well as Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Uh, I'm bringing... Uh, anyway, I'm not going to get bogged down in all the different places I'm coming to, but uh, all the major Australian capital cities I'm coming your way. I'm going to do some regional shows. I'm hopefully going to take one of the shows overseas at some stage. But basically, huge stand-up plans for 2020. Uh, we might do a TOEFOP tour as well. So a lot of live shows coming your way in 2020, uh, the majority of which will be announced this Friday, or at least the ones we already have locked in will be announced this Friday. So um, check my socials if you want to have some details about all the shows that are on sale. So there you go. That's the plug. I know it's a overly extended plug, but it's a... Um, it's been something that I've been working towards for months now, putting this together and my idea of what 2020 would look like and how uh, I could put something together that would be challenging, exciting, but also um, make me happy and I could have some fun. So I think I've come up with a really great solution for that and uh, come out and see a show. There's going to be shows coming your way. Uh, so please uh, come out. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking. Please enjoy this episode with Jamila Rizvi. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Uh, so thanks for tuning in. Maybe this is the first time you've ever listened to the podcast. Maybe you're a big fan of today's guest and you trawl the internet looking for opportunities to hear them interviewed. Uh, well, welcome, if that is the case. Um, very excited to have our guest here today. Someone that I first made contact about doing the podcast quite a quite a long time ago. And uh, we have uh, been in contact back and forward a little bit over that period of time. 
I'm trying to remember. Actually, I, I'll need to introduce the guest before we I, I reminisce about why it is that uh, when it was that we originally got in contact. But uh, this is how the podcast starts. Uh, who are you? Uh, my name's Jamila Rizvi, um, and I find that question really hard to answer. But I'm Ruffy's mum. I'm Jeremy's wife. I'm Mim's sister, and I do a whole lot of jobs and I really struggle to define what I do. So I tend to define myself by the people. So defining yourself in relationship to the people around you. Yeah. That's you know, an interesting way of looking at life. And, you know, uh, I think it might've been uh, the great philosopher, John Farnham, who once said, we're all someone's daughter, we're all someone's son, but uh, how long can we look at each other down the barrel of a gun? <laughs> Words as relevant today as when Jack whispered yeah, to got us that, in the I've got that on my, on my wall. I think about uh, it every day. Uh, relation, defining yourself through your relationship with others is a definition, but it's not necessarily a definition of who you are. It's a definition of how you define yourself in relation to others, yes? Maybe and maybe not because I, I think I define myself by those relationships, not necessarily their relationship to me, but uh, the my role in the relationship to them, right? Because it is, it's a job not in the sense of I get paid and I show up, but it's a job in the sense of being a good friend and a good wife. I'm actually often pretty rubbish wife, but a good mother or whatever it happens to be. So I, I don't know. I, I think I still consider myself those things first. I like it. It's a good place to start. And it's a good place to start with the simple question that this podcast has at the heart of it, which is, do you have a philosophy towards life. And I always say to people, it can be a life philosophy. I like, I mean, realistically, it's just a subtle way of me blatantly asking complete strangers, you know, what do you reckon the meaning of life is? <laughs> what is life about? Please tell me what you think. Um, but do you have a life philosophy or a work philosophy or a family philosophy, a parenthood philosophy? Yeah, I think a work philosophy, I most definitely have, which is done is better than perfect. Um, I have worked in industries and creative industries for a really long time, and it is very easy to hold out to try and achieve perfect to the point that you become so constipated <laughs> with your work that you actually don't achieve anything good. And I'd rather put something out in the world that's good and is done rather than waiting for perfection that I'll never achieve. Um, ahead of doing this podcast, I was thinking about the life philosophy bit and I I don't think I have something that sits with me constantly and that is always front of mind, but I, and certainly not something that is eloquent and well expressed and pithy and you can put on an inspirational quote, but I, I do tend to come back to that idea of people don't remember what you do and people don't remember what you say, but they remember how you made them feel. And I have a terrible memory. And so that's very true for me. I remember how people made me feel. So I always endeavor to make sure people feel good after an interaction with me. Okay. So I love that. I Cause I think that's very true. And I, I absolutely, cause I'm, I'm terrible with memory too. If people, I was, as I was floundering around at the start of this podcast, trying to remember why it was that I initially was like, oh, you'll be great for the podcast. <laughs> I, I, I realized that I had waded into a pool that I didn't need to wade into, that I realized I had no idea how deep it was or uh, where I was going with that. I think maybe I had heard you speak on Tom, pa Tom Ballard's podcast, uh, yeah, like right. I'm a six-year-old. And it might have been around the time that there'd been, and we don't have to revisit it, but I think there'd been a media storm around the project or something. Oh, I usually, um, I usually have upset 
a white man on television <laughs> quite recently. <laughs> so it, I'm sure it was after one of those. It was after one of the times you'd upset a white man on television. Yeah, yeah there's been a few. <laughs> which, yeah, which will not let anybody who's looking up the details of that on the internet find one specific incident. They can just find all the incidents. <laughs> Um, but I'm glad that you've come to do the show and, uh, there's been a few, uh, delaying factors in between, but do you think the work philosophy, I'm very interested because I think as a work philosophy, that's a great one. Uh, you know, often I think that, you know, I've, I've done 25 different shows at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, that's 25 insane. individual shows. However, I, if I had waited for any of them to be complete or right or perfect, I never would have done a show at the Melbourne Comedy mm. Festival because I've never done anything that I considered to be complete, that I considered to be perfect. Um, and just the fact that I book it in means that I then have to do it. Yeah. A deadline, a deadline forces you to create something, even if you're sitting there feeling like you're stuck or you don't know where you're going. The reality is that I know for me, when you stand up on a stage even if you don't know what you're doing, if you can get the first sentence out, the rest of it, the rest of it will follow. So in a, uh, in the way of creating work, and I absolutely agree with what you're saying around the idea that, you know, perfection can be constipating. I think that's a good way of putting it because if you wait for that perfect idea or you sit there to, I mean, just starting in itself has some momentum to it. And I think that's a really clever thing to do. Do you actually have techniques by which you institute that? Do you have to remind yourself of that or is that something that now comes naturally to you? Oh, no. I have to remind myself all the time because otherwise you can sit there. Like I'm like everyone, I think, that you sit down to write something new and you spend roughly three to four hours on the first sentence and then half an hour on the next 800, right? Because the first sentence is the beginning and it has to be perfect and it has to be beautiful and I'm a writer and I'm a columnist, which means I'm working to a daily deadline when I'm writing a column, often less than that. I had Julie Lewis, who's the opinion editor at the Sydney Morning Herald, call the other day at 2pm and say, could you write this by five? So you've got to be able to go fast and you can't hold out for perfection. You've got to get on with it. Um, with writing, I suppose I have my own little tricks. With writing, I never start at the start. <laughs> Um, I never try and write the first sentence because I always get stuck. I just get into it. And back when I was editing websites and editing content, one of the things I used to find about young writers and who had great ideas but were new to the craft was they'd kind of amble up to the point slowly. You know, they kind of go for a little wander around for four or five sentences before getting into the story and often editing them you just come in and delete the first five sentences and say, there, you start there. So I try and force myself to do that by skipping the beginning and the beautiful intro. Right. And circle back and yeah, put that together if it needs to be put together, but maybe it doesn't need to be there in the first place. Yeah. And you often find it as you write, you know, I've, I've just signed the contract for a new book and we don't have a title which is really, you know, not ideal for selling the thing and talking about it in the media. Um, or, you know, even being able to have a conversation about it is really complex because I don't have a cute, fun way to describe it yet. But, you know, it's not coming out for ages. I, and I know it'll come through the writing. There'll be a moment when I suddenly go, oh, that's the title, obviously. Um, I'll feel anxious until that moment comes. So th it's interesting because a lot of people, even that, like even that simple thing of letting the title grow from the book rather than starting with the title and then writing the book. Do you think that those two things 
as a thought experiment, more than anything I'm asking here, but do you think you get a different result that if you already knew what the title of the book was, do you then write the book to the title and it's a different book to whether you're writing the book and the title comes out of it, or would you end up with the same book regardless? Mm, That's a really good question. Um, I think if you try and write to a title, you restrict yourself too much, right? You draw boundaries around where you're going and you don't allow yourself to follow the thought process that comes or the interviews that happen or the sparks of thought that happen in six months time, because, you know, I'm going to be a different person in six months time to I am now, and I'll be a different person again in six months after that. Um, so yeah, I do think you get a different result. And I, I don't say that to suggest that I don't plan. I'm a really big planner. I am someone who makes long and elaborate plans and lists and does things under multiple headings and color codes and that kind of thing. But I recognize that the planning is for my own intellectual benefit rather than to follow it exactly. So when you say planning, because I'm very interested in planning because I'm constantly writing lists, yeah. mostly writing lists. I don't I understand don't, people don't, who don't write lists. Yeah, but a I, list I, is so exciting. I'd like to get to the point where I can follow lists through. I'm yeah. more stuck in the, I'm very good at writing lists of things that I plan to do without actually executing those the, uh, yeah, item points that are on the list. What's your list technique and what sort of things are you writing lists for? Oh, there's nothing I don't write lists for, right? Like, so if you open my computer desktop now, there's probably seven or eight lists Mm. for different jobs that I have, for different ideas that I've got going, for book stuff, for interviews, but then also really mundane, boring stuff. Like it's Oliver's birthday party tomorrow afternoon and I need to go and buy him a birthday present. Uh, You know, like random boring things because I'm really forgetful. I um. And I, I mean, everyone says oh, I'm forgetful, but I, I have, I've had a couple of brain surgeries the last two years and radiation. So I am medically genuinely forgetful. And so I write everything down because otherwise I can have a really good idea and it's gone. It's gone a few hours later. Have you found, cause I, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the brain surgeries in the case there's anybody listening is like, is he going to circle back on the brain surgeries? Yeah. I was going to get to that guys. Don't we'll worry. We're <laughs> I, just thought, I just thought we would ease in a little. We'd, we'd do a couple of those sentences that'll get edited out later before we <laughs> jumped into the juicy stuff. But, uh, seeing we're talking about memory, have you noticed that there has been a discernible you know, effect on, on, on your memory from those yeah. surgeries? Yeah. And I think it's, It's hard to explain. There's so many things that have been hard about the last couple of years going from being a healthy person. And when I say a healthy person, you know, I wasn't in perfect health all the time, but I was someone who took my health as a given. You know, there was a standard amount of energy and absence of pain in my ordinary day that I took completely granted. And it's only now looking back, I go, you idiot, you know how lucky you were to be able to live like that and get up in the morning and go to the gym and not feel it in your head or feel it in your body or whatever it might be, um, to not be scared or, or whatever that is. But there's been a lot of things I've, I've lost and a lot of things that have been taken away from me the last two years. But I think the hardest is, is feeling dumber, which is a really hard thing for me to say out loud because I I pride myself on being someone with an intelligent contribution to make to the world, but recognizing I am not as quick as I used to be, Um, that the thoughts will come to me, but that uh, they don't come to me sitting here facing you the way they might have a year and a half ago. 
It's interesting because, uh, I mean, I live with chronic pain. I have osteoarthritis and um, it's been a constant in my life for, you know, a dozen years now. And you adjust to it and you sometimes forget. How long do you reckon it took to adjust? Well, I mean, you don't, what my point is that you adjust your life constantly. Yeah. But the truth of it is that while it hurts me when I travel and it hurts me when I, um, you know, sometimes, you know, sitting for a period of mm. time is really hard for me to do, you know, so I'll have to get up and stand up and these sort of things. But in a practical sense, I don't work with my body. My body is part of my everyday life, but I don't have a... You're not a laborer. I'm not a physical laborer. I, I'm not a professional sports person. I'm not somebody who relies on my body mm. to be my instrument. My brain is what earns my living. And as long as my body's good enough to sort of carry it around from place to place and I can tell some jokes, everybody's fine with that. Uh, the idea that the instrument you use for the majority of your work is the one affected by what's going on is, is a step even more scary for me. Yeah. Because... Because, you know, I could, I could lose a leg and I can just hop to gigs. In fact, it'd probably be a good hook. I'd probably get a whole Melbourne Comedy Festival show out of it. I mean, Adam Hills would be mad that I was probably doing it just to look more oh, like wow, him again. Oh, wow, just more but, and more. Yeah. <laughs> but, but otherwise, um, so tell me about that. Tell me about the association of, okay, you know what? I was going to wait, but I, I feel like we're here and we might That's as well just... I dived in. No, no. I casually drop brain surgery into conversations it's without a... realizing it shocks people. That's fine. I mean, I, I knew it was coming, uh, but the audience probably didn't. So let's... let. I think now we probably have to just talk about it. Yeah. So why did you... Why have you had brain surgery? It wasn't elective, I imagine. No, it wasn't <laughs> my idea. Um, let me see. Uh, about close to two years ago now, um, I skipped period. So really simple, not a big deal. Um, at the time I was on a book tour and I just went, I'm a bit stressed, Stress. right? I'm a bit anxious and a bit stressed. Um, but because my husband and I had talked about having another baby, I was like, oh, I'm going to go check this out. My doctor sent me away to do some blood tests and she said, take these the first day your period comes back, do the blood tests and then let's look at it. Waited two months and nothing. So I went back to the doctor and went, do I just do the blood tests anyway? I did. And she looked at the results and said, this is so odd. You have no estrogen, like none at all. Um, and I remember my first reaction was, am I a man now? Right. <laughs> like I had a really sort of, uh, sort of silly, almost childlike reaction. And then I thought, oh, I'm, I'm in early menopause. Like I, that must be what's going on. Uh, my GP referred me off to a bunch of different specialists and I saw them over the next few days and all of them ordered different tests and different things to try and figure out what was going on. And one of them said, oh, we do a brain scan. It's just a matter of course, just to rule stuff out. And I was like, yeah, yeah, sounds good. I did the brain, brain scan that morning and went out to lunch. And when I... At this point, with any fear that... Like, because, you know, they run on. medical tests, right? And you think, oh, well, they're, they're running them all, but the chances of... Yeah, them being relevant to what's going on with me. It didn't even occur to me that yeah. anything could be wrong. And that, maybe that sounds a bit trite, but it genuinely didn't. I remember lying in that MRI machine. I was more anxious about having the MRI mm. than I was about the results. Um, but I went out to lunch that day and I didn't look at my phone. Um, and after lunch, I picked up my phone. And I had a missed call from every specialist. So I, like, I think I knew immediately something yeah. was really wrong. Um went straight to the first specialist that called uh, and met my husband there. And um, I remember she said, she didn't use the word tumour. She said, there's a growth in your brain. And I remember thinking, oh, I don't know what that means. No. I don't know what that is. 
Uh, it almost sounds like it could be positive at that stage. Yeah, like my brain's but just my a brain's bit bigger than bigger. others. I've always suspected, to be <laughs> well honest. Well done, me. Um, <laughs> I've certainly had a few arguments with people I thought had smaller brains than me, and this is now proved by science. I, I, I remember just thinking, oh, I don't know what that that means. And, I, and nothing, I, I didn't follow the conversation. I, I tuned out. All I got was that I had to see a brain surgeon and she'd booked me in to see someone in about five days. Mm. And then we had to wait five days. So how long is that, when, when this consultation happens, how long does that entire thing take in, in like, you know, when you're being uh, told that you need to go and get this probably test? Probably less than 20 minutes. Right. And, um, and what are your, so your memories are, you're confused, you is that what you, what I was your I was just in so much, I almost feel like, yeah, I was in so much shock that I didn't take anything in. Mm. I remember the word, I remember her saying growth again and again and thinking, Oh, well, that's not so bad. And she said, we think it's either A or B, used long, complicated medical words I'd never heard. Um, And she said, but you need to see a brain surgeon. And then my husband started asking lots of questions and pretty much every answer she had was, I I can't answer that. Until we need to see a brain surgeon. Right. (laughs) Um, I'm a gynecologist Mm. and that's not something I can answer for you. Um, and And then we waited. So what's that five days like? Oh, hell, like actual hell. Um, my, I remember my best friend Pip showed up the next morning at 8am on our doorstep. She lives interstate. She just got on a plane because she didn't know what else to do. Uh, and then she just followed my partner and I round to the appointments because she just, she, and uh, like it would have been helpful if she'd come along to babysit, but she doesn't like children. Mm. So she she just came along, she came along to, to, to follow us. Bless to her. be there in case and you needed was, her. It was amazing. It was amazing um, to have her there. But I, I hardly took in anything. I, I remember I didn't sleep properly. Like I wasn't, I, and if I did sleep, I wasn't getting quality sleep. Were you feeling before this any, phys- apart from the physical manifestation of not getting your period? I felt completely normal. Right. Completely normal. There was absolutely nothing. No memory, no headaches, no, no nothing. Uh, so this five days of not being able to sleep is more about the nerves of what you're going yeah, in for and what and it might be. life was going to change. And, uh, I, and did you start to, uh, for want of a better word, catastrophize oh, around yeah. that? Yeah. I, um, I, I knew I didn't, we didn't know if it was cancer. I was really, con- I knew the survival rates for brain cancer were incredibly low um, Carrie Bickmore's a friend of mine, so I knew sort of that from, from talking to her. And so that was full of panic, but I also just didn't quite believe what was going on. Every morning I woke up thinking that wasn't true, that I dreamt that. And within 10 seconds, you sort of have this thudding realization when you go, oh no, that's right. Um, I don't think I've ever had something not leave me for a second. If that makes sense. Like there wasn't even a moment's respite, including when I was asleep. Um, the, the fear was quite all consuming. If you don't mind me asking, um, what, what was the greatest fear? Oh, that I was going to die. That was, that was, that was the sum of it. I, I am, I'm not a religious person. Um, I've never, I've never been someone particularly comfortable with talking about or thinking about death. And suddenly that was all I was thinking about every second of every day. And you say that really flippantly, right? The number of times I've said in a conversation, oh, I thought about it 24 hours a day. 
bullshit. No, I didn't. On that occasion, I, I was. It, I didn't leave my consciousness ever. And what about the people around you? I don't ask you to speak for them, but what was their, what did you feel like, what was their attitude? Is their attitude in that situation, everything's going to be okay? Is their attitude in that situation, this is serious, but I'm here and hopefully everything's going to, like what, yeah. how do, how do they react? Everyone was different. Um, and I think that was one of the discoveries I made through this is that shock and grief are very personal, whether it's happening to you or happening to someone you love. My parents didn't cope. Um, I think if I'd been a little kid, they would have been forced to cope. But because I'm an adult and it was my partner and I making medical decisions, they went into this supporting role where they were just in shock. And I remember having a conversation with my mum at one point and her sort of looking for reassurance from me that I was going to be okay. And I just lost it at her. And I'm not a yeller, but I just yelled at her, which is still feel awful about, like she thought her daughter was going to die and I yelled at her. Um, but she wanted me to tell her everything was going to be okay. And I needed her to tell me. Um, and I remember saying, I cannot be this person for you right now. You have to find someone else to do this job. I, like, I can't be the one reassuring you I'm not going to die. Um, I can't have that conversation. My husband is the most steady emotional person I know. Um, like he just doesn't have enormous highs and enormous lows. He's very compartmentalized. He's the son of a philosopher. So I think he grew up in a very particular household. Um, and he has a very evolved sense of being able to talk about this stuff. And honestly, it was worth marrying him for the first three weeks after finding out alone. Like even if the rest of our relationship's a bit rubbish, <laughs> like it was worth it for those three weeks. Cause he kept me looking straight ahead. Um, and he kept me calm through the whole thing. Uh, and I think he was the only reason I w was able to sort of put one foot in front of the other, um, during F those few weeks. Five days is hard. Yeah. Five, five days is a hard number because it says that they think it's important enough that they've tried to get you in that week, you know, yeah. <laughs> but it's still enough days that, you know, not sleeping for five days. It's to not we're in something. hospital tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, that's five days where you're really going to if you're thinking about it 24 seven and not sleeping and all those factors start to yeah. contribute to each other. I imagine by the time that you actually have to, you know, go and have this consultation that you, you're pretty scared. Yeah. And we, I just built it up, you know, I'd, I'd been, it was all I'd thought about for those four or five days. And I had completely built it up in my head that all the answers were going to come from this appointment. And anyone who's had appointments with doctors, specialists in their lives knows you never get a fulsome amount of answers and you never feel completely satisfied when you leave. Um, because you know, despite being doctors, they're not mind readers. They don't know every bit of reassurance you require. You often struggle to articulate all the questions you have. Um, and for me, that appointment, I don't think it could have gone worse. I don't um, think it could have been worse. Obviously, again, like all of this comes with the proviso. I'll stop saying it every time, but please know that I mean it every time, which is only share as much of this as you're comfortable sharing. No, that's but, fine. I'm quite comfortable sharing it. But actually. I, uh, so tell me, can you tell me about what that appointment's like? Yeah. So we walked into this appointment room. We waited 
we were kept waiting for a good 45 minutes, which happens. Doctors run late. And we walked in and he said, ah, well, you two are millennials, so you probably Googled everything already. So I won't talk. You just ask me questions. And I'd been waiting for answers for five days and was told, oh, you've probably Dr. Googled it all. And I was just like, no, I, 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 I need, I need you, to say an expert. <laughs> who went to medical school yeah. for many years to tell me what's going on. And I, I think I was furious from the first second. Like I was furious as well as scared. Um, and he basically gave us a set of advice saying this tumor is incredibly rare. Um, you probably won't find more than a couple of doctors in this city who've ever operated on one. Um, but I think I can get to it. And I was obsessed with this idea of, is it cancer? And so I, I asked that and he just looked at me and said, well, that's not really the point. And as the, like the non-medical lay person, I'm sitting there going, I think it's the point. I think that's a pretty big point, isn't it? (laughs) You know, completely overwhelmed by it. And he said, no, it's not cancer, but for your purposes, this is so hard to get to and so close to important structures in the brain. It doesn't make a difference. That's that's the point, right? He's looking at it from an end point, a result of like, it doesn't yeah. matter if it's cancer or not. It's yeah. dangerous. And to, yeah, to deal with this, it's as dangerous yeah. as if it were cancer. Yeah. And it mattered to me, um, regardless of you know, the medical classification. It mattered in my lay person's terms of brain cancer does not have good survival rates. Mm. And I can be very, I get to be very scared if that's what it is. So how long does that meeting go for? I think it probably went for about half an hour. And at the end of it, did you feel, well, tell me how you felt. Well, I just told you how sane and steady my husband is. He almost drove off the road on the way back. So even he was shaken up. So we weren't in a good place. Do you think that before that he had a bit of a sense of like, come on. I mean, because this is very rare, right? Yeah. That it's probably not the worst case scenario. I think so. Um, I think he was at least more, he, he works in, he's a lawyer, but he works, his work often crosses medical fields. And I think he was more realistic about rather than fatalistic, which is what I was. Uh, But after that appointment, I think he let himself dip momentarily into my headspace. And I I genuinely think, looking back, that's the only time he did the whole whole way, the whole way through. Do you think that's because that's the nature of his personality or do you think that's because he – it's partly the nature of his personality and partly he knew – that one of you was going to have to play that role and he decided that it was going to be him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he, I'm the emotional up and down roller coastery one in the relationship, if you couldn't tell already. And, um, he has, he's the steady one, uh, and he's the calm one. Um, and I think he is, he's the amazing support person. I always think of ballet dancers and I always think of how the, ballerina gets all the applause and all she gets to be the fancy one wearing the pretty costume and getting tossed in the air but so much of the work is coming from the bloke who has to be in physical perfect condition to do that and that's how I often think about Jez and Jez if you're listening that's not suggesting you are in peak physical condition (laughs) a little drive-by for Jez you've done quite well up until now Jez to be honest (laughs) we gave him a lot of points we've got to to cut him down to size so okay so now you have a a, what a brain tumor yes so 
two, one. Yes, just the one. Just the it one. just keeps coming back. <laughs> okay, so you have a brain tumour. Um, what happens next? Uh, we changed surgeons next, mm. um, which I don't think I thought was an option when I saw him or it wasn't in my head to go and talk to somebody else. But we got home that night and we told some close friends. Um, but as I said, that was the night I saw Jez almost run off the road. And it was the first time, which shows how selfish I was in all these moments, that I thought about him and not me. And my first thought was, if I'm going to be really sick and possibly die, he needs to talk to someone. And he needs to talk to someone who understands. And I mentioned her earlier. So I called Carrie, um, uh, who lost her first husband to brain cancer. And I called her about 7.35. So the project had just finished. And I think she was at our house by eight o'clock. So she must have broken all sorts of speed limits. <laughs> um, but she was with no, us. Carrie's like the president. Very you, you win a gold Logie. She's they, that important. They give you a police escort. Yeah, they, ma they, ma they make it possible for yeah. her to get to you, um, which was incredibly generous. We were friends, but we weren't close at the time. And she showed up on our couch and she cried with us and she kind of gave us permission, I think, to fall apart. Everyone else had been doing this stay strong for us thing. And she just sobbed. And the fact that someone who wasn't a best mate was reacting like that, I think allowed us to feel the same. Um, anyway. Was, was there an element though that also, you know, I mean, all of this, I imagine makes it real, but mm. I don't know. You always still feel like it's not real, right? Oh, yeah. There's always got to be a part of you that like either, yeah, this doctor was wrong or this yep. is a giant mistake or yep. it's not going to be as bad as what they think it is. And then suddenly you're there with Carrie who, you know, lost someone. Yeah. Like, you know, he died. Yeah. There is, there's a reality to that. Yeah. You're sitting with someone, the person who's comforting you can't tell you that everything's going to be okay because yeah. it wasn't. Yeah. And there's they a stages of grief things. factor, yeah. I think. And so, yeah, as you just said, like that's bargaining, right? Going, oh, I think they've probably made an error. And the number of times I went, they've looked at the wrong scan. They've picked up someone else's. I'm going to get that phone call. Or they're going to say, actually, there was a blip in the machine. There was bubble gum on it or something. I don't yeah. know. This is the first brain tumor we've discovered that's actually positive. Yeah. You should be developing special powers <laughs> sometime in the next couple of weeks. I think I genuinely was looking for any any version of that explanation. And I'm, this is something I've really, I think looking back, I really understand is I'm not a physically confident person. I played a lot of sport as a kid. Like I, I was always quite an athletic kid, but I was always scared of heights. I'd never liked things like skiing because I didn't like the idea of falling over. The idea of taking risks physically has always terrified me. I'm quite a confident person when it comes to taking risks in other facets of life, but not physically. And brain surgery, like that was high on the list of physical risks that I didn't want to take. It's funny. I was having this same thought yesterday. I was walking by the Yarra in Melbourne and uh, by that, you know, the skate park they have down yeah, by the Yarra. Yeah. And I walked by and there was just some young kids, you know, doing skateboard tricks, but just doing that sort of thing where my immediate observation was, gee, that's dangerous. Yeah. And I, I, I thought in that moment, I was like, I was never that kid. I've taken a whole bunch of risks work, career, life, all these sort of things. But physically, I absolutely identify with what you're saying. I was just never one of those kids who 
wanted to do that thing that was, you know, physically yeah. scary. I was the eight-year-old that stood at the top of the water slide and let everyone go in front of me because I decided I wasn't going down but needed to save face. <laughs> you go next. You yeah. go next. And then a kid would come up because they'd already gone down and they'd be, why are you still here? And you're like, oh, I just, I can't slide right now. Oh my God. I'm going to be found out. So what, what's the process when you, uh, uh, when they know that you have a brain tumour? What happens? So long story short, we switched surgeons. I love that man second only to my husband <laughs> um, in terms of uh, adult men I'm in love with. My son's pretty good. Um, we had to wait a little while. He said to me he didn't want to operate. He said there's no real rush. He said we need to get this thing out in the next few months, but there's no like this needs to get out tomorrow. Um and he said, I'd like to wait until after Christmas because survival rates and problems in hospitals around Christmas are, it's all worse because you've got staff on leave, your regular nursing staff aren't there, your reg regular anaesthetist isn't there. Everything's just not working quite the way it should. So if you have to have surgery, you know, go ahead and do it. Um, but he suggested we, we wait until towards the end of January. And that would have been, he, we met him the first week of November. So I had this, what felt like an epic wake, wait, uh, yeah, three months of waiting. Don't get surgery at Christmas sounds like one of those great things that everybody should know. Yeah. You know what I mean? Good like, tip for life. You know, it's like don't eat fish on a Monday at a restaurant. It yeah. feels like don't get surgery at Christmas is one of those. If you can choose, yeah. just don't go for holidays. But there must be two competing things going on with you. Well. If it were me, there would be two competing things going on. One is I have a tumor in my head. I want it out of my head as quickly as possible. Yep. Or the other one, had they told you what the success rate of the surgery was or what the risk, I guess, of having the surgery was? So they, because my tumor is so rare, they didn't have documentation to give me. So they gave me documentation for similar tumors that are a bit different. Um, so I, I got all of this in person, but the paperwork I had to take away was not for me. But the the chance of death in surgery was one in 200 in the paperwork that I had. And I just became, I'm laughing, it's not funny, completely fixated on that number because I, I'm a planner, as we discussed at the top of this, right? I'm, I'm a planner and my I plan for the outcomes I'm worried about. There's no point planning for the other 199 outcomes. I'll be fine, right? I know how to live. Um, so I got really I have no idea. So if on you can planning give me some for advice, the one. <laughs> that'd be great. Um, but it was all I thought about. Yeah. Yeah. So is it better to have all that extra time or is it worse to have all that extra time? I think time? it depends who you are. For me, it was definitely worse. Definitely worse. Did you, did it add any, does it add any extra weight to, I just guess the experiences I think about Christmas. I mean, I, you weren't raised in a, in a family that celebrated a lot of Christmas. Or we you celebrated did? Christmas just in, an, a, in a uniquely way. commercial right. way. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing said, to do yeah. with God and all yeah. to do with buying stuff. Well, also the way that I celebrate yeah. Christmas. <laughs> um, uh, so it, it did it for your family, like, you know, when you're thinking about your husband, you're thinking about children, you're thinking about you know, the way that you relate to your parents, your friends, 
does that all suddenly have an extra weight or are you so caught up in the idea that you're sick that you don't have the time to, I mean, I guess what I'm asking is that how much are you concentrating on here is my illness? I have this thing Mm. in my head and how much does the thought of is, could this possibly be my last Christmas? Is this the last time I'm going to get to do this with my children? Like, is that, constantly in that your was head? that was very close to constant i think there were maybe there were a couple of days where i had a bit of respite where for some for whatever reason in those couple of months my my head let me go somewhere else for a little while but i looking back i think i was quite severely mentally ill during that period like i i i was disassociating from what was going on around me i was hosting um radio nationally on abc i was hosting the afternoon show um over summer and there were three hours where I would come off air and I'd realize I didn't know what had happened, that I, I would be on air for three hours and I couldn't tell you what I'd talked about or who I'd talked to. I remember walking up to someone in the lobby and them saying, oh, thanks. That was great fun. And going, who are you? And, uh, my producer saying, you, you just didn't, you interviewed her for, for like 20 minutes. And I, I just wasn't conscious. And that was not the tumor. That was just fear. That was just completely debilitating fear. The good news is I've met plenty of people in the media who <laughs> act like that. They probably, just as rude they, and they probably just thought you were a showbiz arsehole. Yeah, right. Like, right. Look at her. So Which makes me even sadder. <laughs> um, but it was, yeah, I wasn't yeah, I wasn't in the But in you the kept world. doing things? Like you weren't going to let it stop you doing other things? I tried things? to keep doing things. I took two weeks off before the actual surgery. Dumbest thing I've ever done. Dumbest thing for me. Not Why? the right thing. Uh, because then I had nothing else to think about. All, all I could think about was being scared. And um, I, yeah, I fell into a real coma of fear, I think. Yeah. Like I, I was walking around, but I was so tired and... When I, when I read uh, or hear from people who've experienced really severe bouts of depression, it was similar to that without the depression bit. Like I, I didn't feel human. I didn't feel like I was in my own body. I was watching it all happen. But it was a, an anxiety about what was going to happen, not a, not a depression. It was a desire to be able to keep living the life I had, not for it to stop. It, there's a, I mean, there's so much documented evidence that links, you know, uh, mental health issues with physical health yeah. issues. It's, you know, um, uh, people much smarter than I have, you know, explored the link between those two things. Uh, but was that feeling that way foreign to you before your yeah. physical health? Yeah, completely foreign. Um, I've always been a sort of nervous person, a little bit anxious sometimes, but nothing, nothing like that. Um, when I, when I talk to Jeremy about it, he says that's the hardest few months of his life was dragging me through that and just wondering if it was going to continue on the other side of surgery. I was convinced I wasn't coming out of surgery and Jeremy was convinced I might come out of surgery feeling the same. And that was his fear, which was a different set of fears. Um, I got to the point that a few days before the surgery, I wanted to pull out. Don't know really what I thought the alternative was, but I, I wanted to pull out. It. 
Yeah, we're going to keep this brain tumor. Nobody stress. Had they explained um, to you what the? I mean, obviously yeah. you have to get it out. It, it's growing yeah. in your head. But had they explained to you what the timeline was if you didn't address it? They didn't have a timeline so much, but I knew what would have happened. All of my hormones would have stopped working. I would have gone blind, and then I would have died quite quickly. Yeah. yeah. So, it so wasn't, there was it no wasn't choice. A, it wasn't a hangout with the tumor yeah. option. No, pulling out was not an option. Yeah. It was. It, yeah, okay. But I remember Jez took me, he thought to make sure I went through with the surgery, he took me in to see the surgeon and he was like, you haven't seen him for a while. Maybe you just need to see him and be reassured this guy is the best and you're in safe hands. And we went in and I, I referenced the fact I'd seen these numbers that were like, you know, one in 200. And he said, oh yeah, but that's not your tumor. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to get, it's going to be better chances. And he said, oh, yours is more like maybe one in a hundred or Maybe more. And I remember Jez just crumpled next to me like, oh, my God, I've made it worse. And thank goodness for him. He then jumped in and said, how many brain surgeries have you done, though? And um, my surgeon said, oh, I, we had a party. There was a celebration thing at 2000, so more than that. And um, Jeremy said, how many patients have you lost in surgery? And he said, I've never lost a patient in surgery. And... Um, I remember thinking, why didn't you lead with that fact? <laughs> like, that was the fact to tell me. <laughs> that See, was my, the one I needed at this time of reassurance. Negative enough to go, oh, geez, he's due for one. I'm going to be the one. I'm yeah. going to be the one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, statistically, that means he's due for a bad streak. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, but I think I, I, I'd also, I'd gotten really healthy in the yeah. lead up to the surgery. Okay, so that's interesting to me because I'm through everything at it. I'm currently in a period of time where I'm trying to prehab my body pre, yeah. pre surgery on my hips. And, um, so tell me about the getting healthy. Why did you do it? What was the idea behind it? I just thought I'm going to, I have so little control in this situation, like so little. Someone else is doing the surgery and I will be asleep, but I can make sure my body's as healthy as it can possibly be going in. Um, I ate really well. I was running eight to 10 Ks a day. I was, I reckon I was pretty much the healthiest I've been in my life. So you didn't, uh, like, cause I think there's probably, again, yeah, I mean, there's probably a myriad of stories, but my natural impulse is going to be, you're going to go one way or the other. You're either going to go into a very self-destructive, yeah. you know, nothing matters. Who cares what I eat? This might be the last time I can eat a bucket yep. of chicken or yeah, the other way, which is I'm going to get myself as healthy as possible. Yeah. We were, we were in the hospital the night before surgery and, uh, ordered Uber Eats cause I hospital food, just order Uber Eats to the hospital, everybody. That's another life tip. Order Uber Eats to the hospital. They will bring it to the floor of your ward. I mean, that's very practical, actually. <laughs> it is very practical. Yeah. Didn't want to eat their food, especially because in my head it was the last meal. Mm. Had to be good. Um, what did you have out of interest? I, st I, I still had healthy food. I had a poke bowl mm. because I was like, <laughs> my body needs to be in peak physical condition for the surgery. I mean, why didn't I order something just deeply? I should have ordered 400 dumplings. <laughs> like... Anyway. <laughs> Excuse me, Doc. While you're removing the tumor from my brain, can you remove about 380 of those <laughs> exactly. dumplings from my stomach as well, please? How long does the surgery take? That one went for about five and a half hours. Um, so how long does the recovery out of the surgery take? Uh, the formal recovery is eight weeks. Real recovery is, I think, more like a year. So that's a that in itself is, you know, because 
there's a there's a part of you that's like, well, the tumor's out, right? Yeah. Can't I just go back to no. everything being normal no. now? No. Um, and I felt pretty rubbish for quite a long time. Yeah. It, it definitely took a while. I still didn't feel normal when they told me it had grown back and they were going again, which was <sighs> six months, six months later, I think. So, okay. So those six months when you say you didn't feel back to normal, yeah, what, what, what does that mean? Physically, mentally, both? Mentally, I was starting to recover, I think. I wasn't normal, but I was starting to recover. Physically, I just felt weak. I just felt really weak. I'd lost a lot of my strength, physical strength, muscle, things like that. Um, I still felt a bit foggy. It's a really hard thing to describe because I'd never experienced it before I had brain surgery. But if I jumped up and down, I could feel my brain moving around in my skull. And that's all I can, that's all I can, that's the only, I could feel it. I could feel it. And, um, there were just, there were things that weren't right and weren't normal yet. I got really tired really easily. Fatigue was really hard. Um, but I was feeling happy and optimistic and I had drawn a line under it and gone, that's a horrible period of my life. That's over. Cause what do they tell you? Cause doctors, you know, obviously are very cautious around this sort of thing mm. and you know, uh, but did you feel like you were done? Like yeah. you actually felt like, okay, well, at some stage in my life, I had a, you know, tumor growing in my head. Yep. Uh, it's been cut out. It's and we're taken good now. me, it's taken me a long time to recover from the side effects of surgery and the the fact that that happened and all these sort of things. But yeah, the good news is from now on, we can just rebuild. Yeah. That's exactly how I felt. I really, I, I kind of, I almost conceptualized it, I think as like a car crash with no lasting physical injury. I thought that is a horrible, traumatic thing that happened to me and my body but it's done. What about the people around you before we get to, you know, then what happens next? What, what, so I imagine in the, in the run up to it, everybody's very concerned, obviously. Yeah. I imagine, you know, they, yep. They yep. Like, everyone they, was a bit tense. They love you and they're concerned and you know, they want to do whatever they can. Yeah. I imagine in the period immediately following, there's that same sort of thing. You know? Oh, everyone was amazing. Yep. My friend Alice did this spreadsheet of visitors and food drop-offs and our house was just inundated with lovely people and lovely support. So how quickly does that then just in their lives go back to normal? Like how, how quickly do you find, you know, you're no longer the person who's post brain surgery and you're now just you're back to normal in the way that other people are treating you? Probably was a, a more than a few months. Like a, I, brain surgery freaks people out because they tend to not know somebody else who's had it. Um, so there was definitely a heightened state of awareness, but I, I did another book tour, um, about four months after the surgery. And I think because that was getting media and I was in the press and in the papers and very, you know, active and traveling, I think there was a bit of an assumption of, oh, she's good now. And I, I'm not criticizing that assumption. That's the, that's what I was telling myself too. <laughs> I mean, yes. The question I would ask in retrospect is why? Why Why were you doing a book tour four months after brain surgery? Yeah. I, when this first happened to me, I didn't really want to talk about it. I was okay with saying something publicly once because I wanted to tell people while I, why I was going to disappear, I suppose, from doing things publicly. I was pulling back from TV and radio and stuff like that. Um, so I wanted to tell people that 
but I didn't want to talk about it. I had this obsession with not being the brain tumor girl. I didn't want the most interesting thing about me to be this. And so I was determined to get back to it as quick as possible. Um, I had the surgery on Australia Day or the day after Australia Day and on International Women's Day, which is middle of March, I did nine speeches in five days in the middle of what should have been the recovery because um, I was so determined not, not to be the person who cancelled. And now I look back on photos of that week and I look like a corpse. <laughs> like I just look so unwell and I shouldn't have been out of the house. But what, yeah, so I completely understand that idea of not, you know, not wanting to let one thing define you, whatever that thing is. Yeah. But secondly, to not let something that has attacked you like an illness be the thing that defines you. Yeah. yeah I get that. I absolutely get the idea that you're like, no, 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 no. That gives this thing even more power over me if I then become the person who, you know, is only about this. But at the same time, is there... When you move on, and I, so I'll speak from my own perspective first, which is that I often think that I push my body way more. Mm. I, I pushed it until it broke. That's the truth. I pushed it until I broke. A few years ago, I yeah, my body let me down so terribly that I really didn't sleep for three months and I couldn't you know, sit down in a car. I couldn't sit down at all, really, to be honest. And, and I, was, I was pretty broken. And a lot of that was because I had just kept through my illnesses going, no, 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 I can still do all this yeah. and I will just keep doing it and doing it and doing it until eventually my body just went, well, if you're not going to slow down, we're going to slow you down absolutely yeah. and completely Pain's once there and for all. How for about a reason, this? like yeah. as, as awful as pain is, particularly chronic pain, it, it's telling, it's telling you something. So were you trying to ignore it? Were you trying to just go, I'm back Everything's fine. You can't beat me. I'm undefeated. Yeah, you know. I think so. I think I was also just really excited to be alive and yeah. in the world. You, you know how people have those, you know, life-threatening experiences or they get diagnosed with a terminal illness and you read these stories about people quitting their jobs and going to the Bahamas or, you know, whatever the hell it is. I didn't have that reaction. I just realized how excellent my life was and just was determined to keep living it. I just wanted to keep doing what I'd been doing. And so I think being allowed to go back to it was exciting. So that's a, that must be a, a lovely thing to realize. Yeah, I think though. that was, that's one really affirming thing was this realization of, you know, the main, and I've also been someone who's all, we, we started at the top of this by talking about my philosophy and how I define myself by people. If you'd asked me two years ago, I would have said, my name's Jamila and I'm an author and a speaker and a broadcaster. <laughs> you know, I, I've changed the way I define myself, not because I've realized what's important because A, that sounds really Pollyanna, but, and B, I love work. I love my work and it is important. I think it, I think what I do is really important and I want to keep doing it, but I still see my primary role in life as being a great loved one of the people around me. And that's new for me. That's definitely new. That's an evolution. I think that's, to me, we, we, none of us know how we would feel in that moment, you know, mm. and as you said, you know, I, I'm fascinated. There's a group of people in society that I'm absolutely fascinated by more than anyone. And it's quite a phenomenon. It's like a, 
it's a thing that happens with more regularity than people would imagine. But whenever there's an accident, mm. uh, you know, a plane crash, a train crash, yeah. these sort of things, there are so many documented incidences of people using that moment to start a new life. Yes. It happens more commonly than people would appreciate. And I'm obsessed by that. Yeah. I'm obsessed by the idea that somebody in the middle of that tragedy goes, you know, this is a sign that everything was wrong in my life and I'm going to use this moment to take off and do something completely different. Fascinating to me. Uh, if there is any of those people out there listening to this podcast, I would Give love, us a buzz. To, I would love to interview you one day. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm not one of those people. But no, I've but changed I, so little. <laughs> well, I think in some ways that's equally fascinating, right? Because that says to you, you know, you didn't smoke ayahuasca in Peru and decide you had to move to Byron Bay. You, you've... You've had this major sort of life experience and your first thought is, no, 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 I just want to do more of what it is that I am yeah. already doing. So I think that that must be an amazing feeling and I can understand why you would want to get out there and do things again. So when when do you then discover that, guess who's back, um, uh, how does that come about? Are you just getting regular tests? Are you starting to feel unwell again? Like wh wh where does that come from? Yeah, I, my eyesight was a bit funny and I'd complained about it a few times and then the regular scan showed it had grown back quite ferociously and was bigger than it was in the first place. Um, and we needed to get it out again. Um, and first time around, oh, this might be gory for people. Can we, are you, are you, either of you freaked out by surgery stories? Not in this, not in this. Okay. Uh, if, if you was, are, stop listening. If I was watching it on TV, I would probably yeah, look away. But uh... So first surgery, they went through my nose, uh -huh. um, which is apparently a thing. I didn't know it was a thing. I was a bit like, you can get to my brain through my nose. Uh, so the first time they went through my nose, but it's relatively non-invasive for a brain surgery, right. right? You can't see the wound. So I looked the same. Um, yeah. Second time, that wasn't possible, and they had to do a full craniotomy, um, which means um, they did a cut from the center of my forehead right round coming down right in front of my ear. So they cut open your head? Yeah, they cut open my head. Yeah. I had 57 staples in it when I woke up. I mean, that in itself must be incredibly confronting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't even have the, like... I have this photo of myself from just after the surgery where they'd taken the dressing off the wound and I just took a photo of myself and I, I looked like something out of Terminator. Like I, I felt like I didn't look human. My face was so swollen, like so enormously swollen. And I had this enormous cut with all these little metal bits in it. And I just, I remember thinking, I don't know who that is. When you find out that it's back, are you better prepared because you've been through it once before or sometimes I think it's harder the second time because you know what you're in for. Mm. I get, this is a very small example. I'm just using it as a, an example. I get these injections in my hip cortisone injections. Yeah. I just don't like needles. I'm not a big needle person. And that's not good when you're a sick person. Oh, <laughs> it's man. not handy. You've got to push through it. I just have to look away. That's yeah. all it is. But I find it, once I know what's coming, I find it harder than when I don't know what's coming. Oh, interesting. I'm the opposite. Okay. Yeah. I reckon that's a, you know, a personality factor. Um, I, 
I'm the opposite. I had this real view of I've done this once and I know how to do it now. Not that I did anything, <laughs> but I thought I know how to do this now. So I just have to do the same thing again. Um, and actually, I don't think it occurred to me that it would be different despite the fact they were really different operations. So like they were cutting out the same bit of tumor, but from a very different method. Um, the recoveries were completely different, completely different. And the second time uh, there was so much damage, they had to be a lot more aggressive, which means I woke up with a lot more disability. First time I, I pretty much woke up okay. I hadn't lost anything more in terms of my function than the estrogen, but I woke up from this one. Most of my hormones don't work anymore, um, which is an enormous problem. It sounds, if you don't know much about hormones, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but it is an enormous problem and um, like life-threatening problem. Um, and I was 50% uh, blind in my left eye. And how long ago was this when the second surgery happened? Uh, about 10 months. And how do you feel now? Well, I felt awful for a very long time. I, 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 I did the lead into the second surgery better, but I did the recovery really hard. Um, because you were more debilitated by yeah, the surgery? Yeah, more debilitated and I looked different and that really messed with my sense of self. Um, I was put on enormous amounts of steroid medication, like I'm talking epic amounts of steroid medication and I gained 13 kilos in 20 days and I'm not a big person so that was a lot on a little frame um I had this huge swollen face I had I well, half my hair had been shaved off I just didn't recognize myself anymore and I found it a lot harder the second time around um from there was something about not recognizing the person in the mirror that really made the recovery harder. Um, and that operation ended up being quite dangerous and went for eight hours. And I think coming to terms with that, there was a lot of grief working through it. And then um, a few months later, it grew back again. <laughs> Because that's, that's what my brain does. This is a never-ending story. Except we hope, we've hope, we hope it's ended now. So it grows back a third time. Yeah. Uh, and I went into radiation treatment. Um, I did radiation every day with a bit of a break in the middle for almost eight weeks. Um, and that was that finished in May. And it's um, August now. So it was really only a few months ago. How do, and I don't mean, by the way, and I, I'm sure that your answer wouldn't uh, seek to purposely, oh, hang on, am I going to sneeze or not? Hang on, wait. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the, f the first time when somebody has an operation like this, mm -hmm. as much as it's a shock to everybody and terrifying to everybody, we all, in a sense, have an internal idea about how to help somebody in a moment of absolute yeah. need. I think sometimes what is much more difficult to deal with is how do you help somebody who has on ongoing yeah. need? You know, it's easy to rally around someone when someone dies. 
you bake them a lasagna, you go to the wake, you offer that support. But when somebody has an ongoing illness or an ongoing issue or an ongoing battle with mental health or whatever it might be, it's sometimes the ongoing nature of it or the repeat nature of it that changes the dynamic of people yeah. around. Was, what, did you find that was the case? Absolutely. Um, and for the most part, it's been a positive experience because I've had people come out of the woodwork who I barely knew or who were friends but not close who have really buckled in around me and been phenomenal. But there's also been people who've just floated away, um, people who didn't know what to say, people who got scared and went with saying nothing and doing nothing over having to deal with it. Um, and that's been hard. And I think I've gone through periods of being really mad at those people <laughs> um, before not letting it go. I haven't let it go. <laughs> um, um, I like to think I've let it go. I haven't. Um, but kind of getting on with it. Uh, but I also get that you can't stay at crisis point always. You can't, especially when your life isn't in crisis point, right? Um, you can't stay at a hundred percent all the time. The adrenaline wears off. It wears off for us, you know, and, um, you know, I'm living it and it wears off that, that sense of crisis, immediacy, this is a disaster. Um, but I definitely reflect back on times friends have been sick now and I'm really frustrated by how I was and that I didn't do better. Um, and I'm determined to be better in future. And I'm now that person that you, like, if you get sick, you have to ask me to go away. Um, because I kind of think too much is better than not enough. So I am interested in how it changes you in regard to those sort of things, because did, did, does it come with guilt? Do you feel, is there a level of guilt of, that you are demanding so much of people's time and attention or does it not, does that not a thought that enters your No. <laughs> does that make me a really bad person? No. Like, I know that from that perspective, I'm someone who's very good at taking help. Yeah. You know how people okay. say, oh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not good it. at asking yeah. for help. I am, is one of my secret yeah. skills is I am very good at taking advantage of my friends and family and asking for help. Um, yeah, I would rather, I could be walking through the desert with no water and somebody drove by slowly as if they wanted to pick me up and I'd be like, I don't want to bother them. No, it's okay, mate. I don't want to make you late. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my feet are sandy, mate. Yeah, exactly. I, wanna... No, I, I, I didn't have a problem asking for what I needed okay. and I knew what I needed. I didn't want people around in the kind of dark, yucky moments other than my closest. Um, but I wanted company. I'm an extrovert and I wanted company. Um, and so I said that to my friends really loudly and proudly through every surgery, through radiation, uh, which meant I had multiple visitors every day. People come around, take me for walks. Um, cause I wasn't allowed to walk on my own. <laughs> um, and I, that company definitely got me through cause I would have gone berserk without it. What was the scariest thing about the whole experience? Um, the night, not the night before each surgery, cause the night before each surgery, I was in hospital, but the night before that, which was my last night at home, um, I slept in my little boy's bed both nights. Poor kid. <laughs> it would be really hot and sweaty. Um, and I remember just thinking, oh, he's, what if he grows up and I don't see it? Um, 
And you know how you, you're supposed to think all those good natured things about your partner and your child and you're supposed to think things like, that's all right, he'll find someone new and there'll be a stepmother who's just as... No, fuck that. I was like, no, <laughs> bitches coming in here and being me. Um, I, I really I really didn't like that idea. <laughs> um, I, I really... Um, I was really worried about how I'd be remembered and perhaps not in the way you'd think. I was really worried that if I died in the surgeries, people would start to beatify me and make me perfect. And, you know, my son would get this, he's little, right? He's just turned four. He was two and three through most of this. I was worried he would get this picture of his mum as like this angel or Madonna type figure. And people would just talk about me in this sort of sad, quiet, what she could have been sort of way. And I remember saying to everyone, tell him the truth. You have to tell him that I get grumpy at these times of the day, that I can be a little bit bitchy, that I get jealous of my sister sometimes, that I'm uh, rude to people who are late, that I'm, you know, like I, I, I wanted him to know me as a full person, not as an idea. Tell my son I wasn't perfect and never let my husband remarry. <laughs> They're my two. Yes, they are my dying wishes. No, I told my husband he could remarry and I wanted him to be happy, but that I would not be happy about that. All oh, right. Okay. That's nice. That's a good <laughs> distinction. I like, I like that you've drawn the line there. Um, so how much of an awareness uh, did your son have that mum was sick? Um, he was aware. Uh, Jez, uh, my partner Jez being himself, went and saw child psychologists and got all this information and how to, how to support Ruffy through it. And that was brilliant. Uh, the single best piece of advice we got was to buy him a doctor's kit, uh, because little kids in these situations feel really powerless and don't, when they don't understand what's happening, they feel like they've got no control anymore. And that gave him something to be able to do that when I was recovering, he could come and check me and fix me and make me better. And he brought it into the hospital and would sit on my bed and con the poor nurses into giving him jelly and, um, play with the doctor's kit. And I think that really helped him. Um, it changed as he got older and he got more of a concept of what was going on. And it was interesting that before the radiation, we sat him down and talked him through what was going to happen. And that was when he was most, most cognizant, you know what I mean? He was three and a half or a little bit older. And he said, he asked two questions. He said, mummy, will you be in hospital at night time? And I said, no, I'll, I'll come home every night. And he said, will you have another really big Band-Aid on your head? And I said, no, there won't be any Band-Aids. And he kind of went, okay, <laughs> and just mo moved on, um, which was really telling for me, I think, about what mattered to him. It was the, the visual and my absence that had an impact on him um, more than anything else. But, you know, he's just turned four. I don't think his concept of the permanence of death is there yet. Um and he measures the scale of pain by the size of your Band-Aid. And I had a really big one. So he knew it was bad. Uh, we talk about death a bit at the end of this podcast. We're not at the end, but we're, we're, I hope maybe we're at the end of the conversation around this you know, part of yeah, the conversation we're going to have. Yeah, let's retire this. We got pretty dark. Um, we need some funny things. But we need to get to the, the – I think this is a logical point to have that question that normally comes at the end anyway, which is what do you think happens when we die? I don't think anything happens. I think and it's this experience exactly has what, not changed that in no. any way. And I, I, and it didn't at all. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't think I even shifted in a, a. A lot of people I think go looking for those kinds of answers, 
I think I just felt sad that I, I was pretty sure I was right. Um, I assume it's exactly what happened before I was born, which is sort of nothing. How do you find, uh, what, what drives the meaning in your life, I guess, is the, you know, uh, the question that comes from that, because a lot of people use, you know, the idea of what happens after death as being the, you know, moral or, you know, framework for, you know, how they're going to live their life. Speaking of lists, here's a list. It's 10 commandments, you know, follow these and you'll get into heaven. You know, that's a, you know, it's very simple, practical, be like this, don't do this, do this. You know, that's how you live your life. That's how you put it together. There's your plan. Whatever it is, yeah, whatever flavor of that it is that people subscribe to. When you live in a world where you don't subscribe to that, where you live in a world where you're faced front on, this isn't a hypothetical. Where you're a godless heathen. Yeah. And, <laughs> but where this is a hyper, hypothetical thing for most people. Yeah. I mean, we're all going to die, yeah. obviously, but most of us haven't faced it in the way that you It's come up sooner for me it. than yes. it's supposed to. Yes. The conversation has thrust itself upon you. Um, what gives your life structure and meaning? Um, I think the people in it and being useful and helpful. They, they're such little words, but being helpful to people and being able to help people out. Um, and I think for me, that's usually emotionally being able to help people out and putting useful things out into the world through writing or talking or whatever it happens to be in a way that people feel a little bit braver or a little bit calmer or a little bit more like things are going to be okay. That's enough for me. It's a, I studied economics at uni. It's a net benefit question. I know that I'm definitely having a negative impact on this planet by living here and using resources up and all those sorts of things. I'm sure I've been mean in my life and I've hurt people in my life, sometimes knowingly and sometimes not knowingly, but I hope there's a net benefit. What is, what is it that you add when you're benefiting people, society? What is it that you, when you say from my writing, from the things that I talk about, what is it that you think that you have to share that is Mm. something that adds to, you know, what society has to talk about? Yeah, I've I've thought about this a lot the last couple of years because I have tried to figure out what it is about my writing or speaking or broadcasting, whatever it is, that is good and that is useful and that is different to anything else somebody else is offering. And I, I think I'm good at explaining things. I'm good at taking complex thoughts, problems and feelings and explaining them in a way that everyone can be involved in the conversation. And... I know in my life there are some things I'm smart about and there are many things I'm not. And I hate being involved in a conversation about something I don't know much about and people make me feel dumb. I hate that feeling. I hate that feeling that I'm not smart enough to be part of that conversation. Um, So I try and have conversations about the things that I care about that bring everyone in and everyone feels like they can understand and relate to. I don't like, I don't like creating things or speaking in a way that makes people feel excluded. So tell me then, um, what is it that you're most passionate about at the moment? What is it that you, when you look at our society and you're motivated to say, here's something that I really want to have my say on. Here's something Mm. that I really want to share my thoughts on. Here's something that I want to open people into a conversation about. What are those things at the moment that you are most passionate about? Well, for me, gender inequality has always been kind of top of the agenda. It's what I've mostly written books about and written my columns about. 
I'm now. Do you believe, as a person with no estrogen, you're qualified to be? <laughs> That's a really good. Yeah, but I have got synthetic <laughs> estrogen, so I'm sweet. <laughs> Um, like I could have more estrogen than everyone else if I just took some more of those tablets. Um, but it's a good point. Touche. Um, I, yeah, I, I enjoy talking about gender. I like talking about gender inequality in a way that describes the benefits of us moving towards equality that are for everyone. I think at the moment we still have a gender equality conversation that's very much focused on women only. And I, think that's quite right, but we need to find space to talk about the benefits of equality for men. I think, I, yeah, I, it's such a complex and tricky area, that one, because I absolutely understand the idea of like, well, you know, when it's like, when it's framed in that argument of like, let's explain to men what the benefits of this are for men, there can be an equally compelling argument that it's like, fuck men. They don't, they're already in this great position. They don't need to be explained to. How about equality the, for the sake of being a decent human being? Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> all that. And I absolutely understand the intellectual exercise and, you know, righteous, like absolutely, you know, righteous and right, you know, in the mm. right way that, that of that argument. Totally get that. But I also, on a practical sense, I'm like, well, if we really want to achieve these things, it's just going to work a little better if we involve, if we explain to everybody how they'll mm. benefit rather than make people feel like, it's the same with immigration, all these sort of things. It's just a more productive approach to explain to people how immigration's good for everybody. It's pragmatic, right? It's pragmatic. It's, yes. it's recognizing, I mean, I can sit here on my high horse and be right. Yeah. in my righteousness, but that doesn't mean anyone's going to come to the party other than people who already agreed. And I, I so I grew up in politics. I worked in politics before I worked in the media. And grew up in Canberra as well, right? I did. I did. See, I did three years of uni in Canberra, so I have a, a special relationship with- Special uh, as in you hate it or special as in soft spot? Uh, yeah, a bit, two sides of the same coin. <laughs> You know, like a bit of both. Like, I think I understand it better than, I mean, I worked in the press gallery and I went yeah. to university at the uni of Canberra and it's a great place to go to, to uni yeah. because you've got two, it's a bit, it's a college town. A lot of yeah, people don't is. get this about Canberra, but essentially it's that perfect formula and you see it in the US as well. The best towns, if you have a couple of universities and politics, like the political class, it leads to you living in a really cool place because yeah. you have all the facilities that the political class demand, you know, the extra lane on the road, the fancy restaurants, but you get that sort of counterculture, the, yeah, what they call hipster or whatever culture that grows out of the university scene. You get good bands coming to town. You get people pro pushing arts and music and yeah. comedy and all yeah, those sort of things. That's so true. It's a good combination, you know, yeah. to have a place that's full of interesting stuff. Yeah. So. Um, I think when I was living there, 666, which was the local ABC yeah. up there, uh, and they um, were running a campaign called Don't Blame Us, We we Live Here, you know, which was the, <laughs> you know, the Canberra that the rest of Australia sees is the political, you know, the politicians, yeah. right? Whereas there's this other Canberra. So tell me about uh, growing up in Canberra and telling me about how much you think that influenced that pragmatic look at you know, how to get things done. Yeah, that's true. Um, hugely. Uh, so I grew up in Canberra from about age three and a half. Um, so most of my, the very vast majority of my childhood and certainly all the formative years were in Canberra. Uh, my mum was a teacher and my dad was a public servant and neither of them used to disclose their political views 
uh, in a partisan political way when I was growing up, but we talked about issues always. Um, that was something we discussed over the dinner table, but I don't think I could have told you at age 18 how my parents voted. So I think they were very good at opening my sister and I up to the political issues of the day and what was going on in, in federal parliament, but in a way where they never really took a side. Um, I'm sure they took a side eternally, uh, but they didn't really take much of a side to us. And then my dad worked at the immigration department for a lot of his career in the less controversial elements, mostly of the immigration department. But I, I remember being 14 or 15, the day Tampa happened. And dad picked me up from tennis training and he said, uh, my minister made a decision that's going to change Australia today. Because where's dad, where's dad from? Is... Uh, he was born in India. Yeah. So an immigrant himself to Australia, yeah. working at the immigration department, yeah. being a public servant whose job it is to facilitate the, the decisions of the government. Yep. In a general sense, that's probably not an all-encompassing description, but a lot of your role is that you have to put what you personally believe aside and yeah, facilitate absolutely. the decisions that are made by the government. That's that's what the public service does. Well, in in an intellectual way, at the very least, you're not supposed to be actively you're undermining the politicians to. you're yeah. serving. No. <laughs> yes. Let's 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 ignore the fact that we know we live in a world where that doesn't always work like that. But how did he feel? Can you remember what that was like for someone who has immigrated? who I imagine looks like an immigrant, you know what I mean? Yeah. As in like to the broader public has immigrated, doesn't have the anonymity of being a white Anglo-Saxon mm. immigrant um, and suddenly is working right at the coalface of, you know, that pivotal moment in Australian history yeah. when it comes to our, our attitude to immigration. Yeah. Dad loved working in that policy area. He loved it. Um, he always has. And now he's uh, retired in quotation marks slash just talking about immigration constantly, he is doing what he loves again. But I think it's always been a complex relationship. Um, I remember he had this tie when we were growing up that was a red tie covered in white sheep with one black one in the middle. And whenever he had a meeting for the first time with someone in the department, he considered a bit racist, he'd wear that tie. And that was like his quiet, his quiet protest. But dad is um, sort of quintessential immigrant of the sixties who is incredibly grateful to be in Australia, uh, and is quite quiet about those sorts of issues. Um, and I think he found that very complex to grapple with at the time, but he finds it far harder now. Um, if you asked him to compare the approach to Australia's immigration system of say Philip Ruddock under John Howard with Peter Dutton under Scott Morrison, he would have a lot harsher things to say now. Well, Tampa sort of up until, I mean, again, this is an oversimplification of how the history actually worked, but immigration was for a long time, one of those things that, you know, both of the major sides agreed that you uh, would Yeah, I don't think that's an oversimplification. Yeah. I think that's true. It you was quite bipartisan. Yeah. You wouldn't open that can of worms because they knew that you could. Yeah. You, you knew, I mean, xenophobia has been one of those things that throughout history has been able to be used as a political tool. And both sides had an unspoken or spoken or whatever it was agreement that they just, let's not open that can of worms because mm. we know what happens. Once we start talking about putting up walls and, you know, stopping boats and, you know, illegal immigrants, you know, yeah. these sort of things, then, you know, that stuff can be used 
as a political weapon forever. Yeah. So let's not open it up to be used as a political weapon. Let's both acknowledge that this is a, that countries, I think there always used to be this unspoken agreement and, and please feel free to correct me if I'm uh, wrong here, but that it's an, in, there is no perfect solution mm. to the idea of how you control your borders. There has to be some sort of control of borders, of course, because you need national security and to be able to account for who's in your country and these sort of things. Um, but also that, you know, that that should be balanced with human rights issues and mm. the idea that immigration can boost the economy and all these sort of things. But it's complex. There's no right or wrong. There's no black or white. There's no simple solution. And both sides seem to agree with each other. We both know there's realistically no simple solution. Yeah. We can both pretend there is. And that's where I feel we are now. Well, we can just stop the boats. We have a simple solution. Yeah. We stop the boats. Everything is going to be fine. These people are all illegal. And we made something that is not black and white, black and white. And, and that's why I think it's worse now. Black and white for political purposes, yes. right? The vast majority of unauthorized arrivals to Australia yeah. come by plane. plane. They come by plane, everybody. Come on a tourist visa and outstay the tourist visa and don't go home. Um, and and if yet people we are really catastrophize about, about, yeah. about boats. And if people are worried genuinely about people dying at sea, which is the argument they'll use in return, right? Well, we're trying to stop people dying. Okay, great. Let's, as a nation, just give them more plane tickets. If they want to, they will fly them in. Yeah, get your passport or your visa, whatever. We'll fly in and then we'll process you here in Australia off the plane, right? If you want to, if you're really scared about people dying at sea, we could get bogged down in that issue and I won't. We can. But, the, the responses are about political expediency, yes. I think, and making a political point. And I think my... My dad came to it with a really particular but pragmatic view, which was he immigrated under white Australia. You know, he was one of the early test cases. Can you believe we called them that? Test cases of bringing non-whites to Australia. So that was the environment he migrated in. And yet all these, he and his family have ever wanted is to make a great contribution to this country. And I think that's the part of the conversation we don't have enough, right? We focus on boats and we focus on refugee and humanitarian intake, we rarely talk about the fact that immigrants hold up the Australian economy and we would be in a lot of trouble given our ageing and retiring population and low birth rate if it wasn't for the fact that we have professional migration at really high levels to make sure we've got people working and paying taxes. So you're raised with a public servant and a teacher yes. uh, as parents. Did you, you're raised in Canberra. Yeah. A lot of time, if people have parents who are teachers or public servants, they're both careers that often children follow their parents into those yeah. professions. Uh, did either of them tempt you? Did you ever think teaching or, uh, you know, the, the public service were going to be your go? I knew I couldn't go into the public service because I had too many opinions uh -huh. and I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to like shove them down. Um, so that wasn't an option. Um, teaching was definitely something I wanted to do and I was interested in doing, but I had that real high school student mentality, which I almost wish someone had talked me out of, which was you had to use up all your marks. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like whatever score you got at the end of school, you had to use all those points up because otherwise you were wasting them rather than just doing what you wanted to do. It's possibly the worst aspect of the educational system is the idea that if you can get enough to go into law that you should that do That you law. should do it. Yeah. <laughs> Without so any... I did law. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what happens. I get that. I absolutely get that. So so what 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 does happen then? 
having said that, I loved it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I went to the ANU. Um, I think you should note and acknowledge my amazing lack of having a go at the University of Canberra earlier because they're rivals down there in Canberra because they're the only ones in town. Yeah, although I, I don't feel the rivalry because the thing about UC and um, ANU was that a lot of the time they were offering incredibly different Yeah, completely courses. different courses. They didn't so offer most like, of the same stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So it was hard to even have a rivalry because it's not like I could go and do journalism at ANU. Yeah. They, and it's actually, <laughs> it's, to be honest, it. it's credit to the University yeah. of Canberra that have gone, we are going to be excellent yeah. in some things that the big sister up the road doesn't do, which yeah. is smart. Cause it's smarter. They've see got the great gap in expertise the in those areas. And do those things well. Yeah. yeah. But I did go and see most of the music I saw at university at, at the <laughs> ANU bar, so yeah. I acknowledge that. Hey, guys, can I just interrupt? Sorry for one sec. Um, oh, I think that here? we've got another booking oh. in here from 12.30. Oh, okay. Do you, I'm just yeah. wondering if we try to find another studio to wrap in. Uh, yeah, let's see if we can do so, that. That's yeah. all right. No worries. Because you can only book them for 90 no. minutes. All good. That's okay. fine. Let's just pause this else's. one. Yep. You were in the middle of talking about the rivalry. <laughs> yeah, cool. Between That's right. We've moved. This is the first time I think this has happened in the podcast, which is good. It's always nice to have a first. Uh, we have just moved. It's been a progressive uh, podcast. It's like a bar crawl. Yeah, but, yeah, exactly. We're going on a podcast crawl. Uh, we uh, have booked, uh, uh, well, anyway, we've moved studios. Uh, we are going, oh God, I'm trying to turn my phone off now and... I, um, my phone has been doing this thing. Anyway, this is completely uninteresting to people, but the number three isn't really working anymore. And my passcode involves the number three. And so once my phone locks, <laughs> anyway, I'll it's just, all over. It's all over. I can't do that anymore. Um, anyway, we were talking University of Canberra versus ANU because Which nobody uh, cares. Nobody cares about. So yeah, it was probably, <laughs> it's a good point. We can, uh, although you did reveal to me off air that your parents are actually star-crossed lovers when it comes to that. Graduates because, from each university. Found yeah. love together. That's what a, right. What a beautiful Canberra education know, story right? that is. They made it happen. Is there anything cooler? <laughs> uh, so um, you go to ANU. Did you consider not uh, going to university in Canberra? Because one of the things that I often say to people that I loved about going to uni in Canberra was that it's a lot of people from Sydney and Melbourne and yeah. stuff, you know, so there's also this sense of you're all the way from home. Yeah, you're you all in this place. as well, I think. And particularly for a country kid like me, you know, Canberra is a good starter city. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah you don't have to go to the real big smokes straight away. You can sort of ease your way into big city living. I didn't consider going anywhere else simply because my dad went to the ANU and my grandfather was brought to Australia by the ANU. Right. So the ANU sponsored him as a professor to come. And there was a real sense, I think it would have been super controversial at home if I'd tried to go somewhere else. Okay. My sister went as well. So there was never sort of any doubt that you were going to go to Yeah, ANU. it was kind of a given, which is a little bit pathetic, but it was a given. And uh, so what happens after you finish university? What, did you finish law at university? I, what did I you did do? eventually finish, but I started working before I finished. So I did law and economics. I... Got a job. Do you remember the 2020 summit? Do you remember Kevin Rudd's 2020 yeah, summit? Yeah, absolutely. So, so he just, this is, we're talking, he just, this was one of his big ideas, wasn't it? Yeah, that he would throw open the yeah. doors of parliament and he would bring in a thousand of the greatest minds to, yeah. I don't know, come it, up it, with what was going to happen. It's actually not, I mean, it's one of those things that in theory, much, much like a lot of uh, what Kevin Rudd uh, was about it, a lot of the things in theory were actually really good ideas. Great photos, great razzmatazz. Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, the execution um, of or the you know implementation of was not necessarily yeah. his strengths, but the I yeah the kind of yeah get let's get a whole bunch of people with you know big ideas, get yeah. them into groups and have big ideas exactly. with each other is not the worst idea in the world. Yeah, so I got sent along to that. I was um, student president at my university because I was really, really cool. Yeah. and That's the number one sign that you're really cool. It, it is. It is super popular. Um, so I got sent along to that. Is that a position you run for? Yes. Yeah. So you campaign for? Were you a member of a political party at university? Uh, yes. I was a member of the ALP yeah. when I was at uni. And so that was an ALP. So you ran as a member of the ALP for like student president or whatever yeah. it is? Yeah. yeah. Um, and had you joined the ALP... Uh, for what reason? So, um, you know, as you said, parents, you never would have known who they voted for. Yeah. The cliche would be they're a teacher and a public servant. So chances are they don't, they're not voting for, yeah. And they're not voting for Cory Bernani's, you know, conservative party. Do you know what I mean? That's chances are they probably lean a little left. You know, those are the sort of jobs of people who lean a little in that direction, but they're jobs where you're not meant to reveal what your political affiliations are. Right. So finding the Labor Party doesn't necessarily surprise me with the ingredients of the parents, but was there some moment in your life that made you think the Labor Party is the party that I'm always interested in people who who at university, you know, decide that I'm going to, you know, align myself to this set of values or this set of ideas. Yeah. I actually came about before that in year 11 and 12, studying economics and talking about Hawke and Keating's reforms. And the, oh, this is so, I'm making this really interesting. Um, the idea that reforming an economy could change people's lives at a social level and make life better for people. Um, what they did appealed to me, creation of HEX, creation of Medicare, um, floating the dollar, those sorts of stories, those economic stories that provided a social safety net for people really had a big impact on me. And I wanted to join the ALP quite young. And my dad said no. And then I joined the week after I turned 18. Again, pretty cool. Pretty bloody (laughs) cool. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Look, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by people who align themselves with uh, party politics. It's not something that has ever been a fascination for me. In fact, the only time that I ever pretended to be in a political party was when I remember it clearly when I was about 15 or 16, uh, my teacher, Jenny Asridge, who was actually one of, um, the great teachers that I had at high school. Uh, And she uh, was brilliant to me actually when I started doing comedy um, because she was teaching in Melbourne then at a girl's school. And uh, she actually got me some tutoring work because I'd been, you know, good at English at school. She got some some tutoring work with some of the girls at her school to to help out. And it was very helpful to me when I was starting out in my comedy career to have, you know, some some part-time work coming in and those sort of things. Great woman, Jenny Etheridge, but she was also the thing that we tested each other a little. She was one of those teachers who knew that I was bored a bit, so would test me. And in return, I would, you know, test her. And one day when she was trying to explain to me, um, you know, a kind of leftist view of the world, which was in many ways something that I completely responded to and agreed to, I decided to tell her that um, my parents had voted national all their life, which (laughs) they have, and that I had planned to, you know, uh, become a member of the Young Nationals and run for presidency of. Do the... you know the Young Nationals go to a much older age than the Young Anything Else's? Is that right? You can be quite an old person. Could to I be a still young national. S- well, <laughs> based on some of the National Party meetings that I saw when I was growing up, it's fair, that right? is absolutely true. If you're under true. fifty, you're yeah, young. You're young, uh, but I've never been a person who would align myself to uh, a political party. Yeah. You know, it, it's just 
I find the idea that there's some sort of, you know, team that I can join that will somehow align with my various thoughts and principles, a very constricting way to, you know, view the world. But so what was it that was appealing about that to you? And what part of that process, that political party process, is it that you believe in? I think I conceived of the reason you join a political party differently to the way you've just explained. According to the way you've just explained, I don't think I would have joined anyone either Um, because there is no one party that accords with everything I think and believe. But having said that, there's no one person that accords with everything I think and believe. I argue with my partner. I argue with my parents. I argue with mates all the time uh, about politics. It's rare that you fall into step on everything. For me, I have always been someone who believes in progressive politics. I believe in a country moving itself forward. And I believe that you can achieve more in a group than you can as an individual. Um, So progressive politics was always something I believed in. And I wanted to join a party of government. I wasn't interested in being connected to a political party that was about being on the crossbench or shouting from the sidelines or influencing policy. I wanted to be making policy. And I think that was because I grew up with a public servant as a parent and I saw government as this mechanism for helping people. And I wanted to be part of that. So that goes to that idea that you've expressed about around pragmatism, about the idea of actually achieving things that, you know, uh, that done is better than perfect. Yes. The very thing that you said in the first place. Now, I think certainly that those major parties are appealing if your position is that done is better than perfect. Oh yeah, if your never position, perfect. yeah, if your position is that you know on issues you're striving more for a more perfect, idealized version of the reason that, I, despite the fact that of the major parties that I can uh, that I've only ever been able to find my uh, way to vote for the Labor Party once, and it was a very, very, very long time ago, um, is that I I struggle to rationalize the compromises as much as. Yeah. And I understand that. Yeah. So I, I do completely. Speak I, to me about that. I worked for the ALP. I worked for Rudd. Um, and then after Rudd, I worked for Kate Ellis when she was a minister for many years, maybe four years until I was about 25. Um, which looking back, like I was a small child, but anyway, um, I, I worked in government and I think that gave me a really, um, immediate view at a very high level, very young that you had to compromise. Uh, to get anything done Um, because we would have to be negotiating with the Greens in the Senate. We'd be negotiating with uh, Nick Xenophon's party. We'd be negotiating with different independents. We had to get things through. Um, There were times that Kate would take something to cabinet and she wouldn't get through everything she wanted, but she'd get through some of it. And we'd have to decide where we wanted money to be spent and where not. Um, There were times we were told you have to find X million dollars worth of cuts in your area. You never want to cut anything. You're doing things because you think they're good, right? But you have to make choices about where that falls. Um, so I think, yeah, it gave me a really rational, pragmatic view and it killed the romanticism for me very early. I had core ideals that I don't think I could shake. And there were definitely times I felt really let down by the government I was working for. Um, And there were times when I wasn't working in government when I felt let down by the party. And there were times I felt enraged by it. But I still think as a progressive person, if I've got a choice between a progressive government and a conservative government, I want the progressive one. 
Do you believe that the ALP are a progressive party? Like, is that something that you have full faith in the fact that they are a progressive political party? I do, because I think the majority of people in that party are progressive individuals. I think the party agenda can be hijacked. I think people can make decisions that aren't in line with their values because sometimes people put wanting to win ahead of wanting to do the right thing. And then I think we all diagnose when things go wrong, we all diagnose it slightly differently, right? So we come up with a different set of responses. Um, and at the moment, you know, I'm watching from the outside, you know, I'm an outsider now, I'm working in the media. I watch from the outside and watch what the ALP is going through and they're, you know, raking over the coals of the last election and they've all got a different view of where, what the right path forward is now. And that means fighting and infighting and different interests. And that drives me bonkers, but I, I still have faith in that broader agenda, that broader progressive agenda, that it exists. One of the things that frustrates me about the ALP is that I feel like they spend, and by the way, this is not you know even a commentary on the, on the Greens, although again, there's a whole bunch of, you know, things the Greens believe in that I also am very sympathetic towards. Um, but you know, they have the same you know, issues, you know, as, as any other group of people mm. in that there's a whole bunch of things that I don't as well. Um, but one of the things I find frustrating about the ALP, particularly in Melbourne, but in, in the inner cities in particular is the way that, you know, in, the, the attack on the Greens seems to often outweigh the attack on the LMP. You know, they seem to be more angry about these greens, you know, in the inner city, you know, taking over their seats. You know, people who in principle are meant to be people who sort of, you know, in the contest of ideas, agree a bit more with them. They seem to be angry at the people who have more in common with them than they do the ones who are in opposition to them. Mm. What, what's your opinion on that? And what's your observation of that? I think putting on the pragmatic hat again, uh, you win government by winning a majority of seats in the lower house. And if people are taking seats off you on the left or the right, it's a problem. Um, so you've got to be guarding territory as well as gaining uh, where you can. So I think there's that purely pragmatic view. Um, and I, I suppose I think it can be frustrating for those within the labour movement who look to other progressive parties and think you get to be pure because you never actually have to govern. And I think that can be annoying. It's like you get to promise things that are not promisable, really, uh, because you'll never have to implement it. You know, I remember it was about a decade ago now, I remember going on the Greens website and seeing at the same time a promise to cap Australia's population at 25 million and an open border immigration policy. And you sit there and you go, guys, these two things do not go together. Um, but does it matter? I mean... They're never going to be the government, so you can promise whatever you like. So I suppose for for me, it, it was always about the interest in a party that could do governing, um, even when they were imperfect, even when they were regularly disappointing to me. <laughs> uh, riddle me this. Would not the most practical thing, if we're talking about uh, pragmatism, you know, if that's, and again, this is not, I'm not talking about this is a conversation that's even happening in any way. But um, we took, we mentioned the National Party mm. earlier on, right? The National Party and the LNP are very different parties. Yeah. But they have formed a coalition based on the fact that they have, you know, enough core principles that they can work on and that they both benefit out of the arrangement and they're enough, you know, in the same world that they can sort of, in a pragmatic sense, make that arrangement work. Mm. 
it, sure, it throws up the fact that at you know, different times we have idiots like Barnaby Joyce being the you know, acting Prime Minister of Australia. <laughs> but there is a pragmatic approach to what they do. Mm. What stops the left, the more progressive parties, from having that same pragmatic approach and the Greens and the, and the ALP forming a coalition uh, in, in the same sort of way to represent, you know, a more progressive view of politics. And yes, of course, there are elements of that that are, you know, pie in the sky, rainbows and whatever, but there are elements of, you know, the conservatives that are like that as well. Mm. You know, the, the far right conservatives that are, you know, they have their battle of ideas and whatever, and some of it infiltrates, but in a pragmatic sense, the majority of it doesn't. Mm. What stops the progressive side from stop eating the, each other and maybe working together to form a government? Um, I think the first thing is it wouldn't be pragmatic. You know, we're talking about a majority of seats in the lower house and a coalition coalition that picks you up one seat isn't a great one from the ALP's perspective. You know, the, the Greens only hold Melbourne in the House of Representatives. So the benefit isn't there the way, the way there is for a coalition on the conservative side of politics. And also I think there's a real tension for the ALP in terms of what it used to be and who it used to represent and how that's changing and how perceptions are changing. Um, I'm conscious of getting too political and boring no, no. people. But I like this. I mean, I ask you the question. Plus they got through a lot of, you know, um, you know, brain tumor stuff to get here. Yeah, so it's fine. Yeah, we did. Uh, <laughs> now you can have your vegetables. Um, I, I think the outcome of the Victorian election, the last Victorian state election is a fascinating one, right? Because we saw a real realignment of the way people voted uh, because you saw sort of the left-wing inner city progressive types voting for Labor, but you also saw uh, less socially conservative but economically conservative, previously liberal voting um, individuals also moving to Labor. And I think nationally we're also seeing a similar realignment, but outside of Victoria it doesn't realign in Labor's favour. When you are looking at the whole country's realignment, it, the alignment is different. I think we're seeing people who live in the outer suburbs, working class people who uh, would have been the bread and butter voter of Hawke uh, leaving the Labor Party and wouldn't consider the Labor Party and are looking to the coalition. Um, and Labor has to think about how they're going to get that person back. And the thing most alienating to that individual is probably a coalition with the Greens. So I think Labor is trying to bring together some very disparate interests at the same time as we're seeing this real realignment of politics where the conservative side of politics is less conservative than it used to be, especially if you look globally. You know, if you think of those pushing Brexit, of the Trump supporters, like this this is a, not a conservative agenda that we're seeing played out globally. And yet I think the right wing and its alignment with conservatism is changing a little bit um, at the same time as left wing's association with the working class is also changing um, as you're talking about more socially progressive, uh, green-focused voters. I mean, you, you couldn't get a better example than the convoy that the Greens and Bob Brown ran at the last election where they went from, I think it was Melbourne to far north Queensland, uh, telling people not to vote for Adani. Now, I really strongly believe Adani is not something that should go ahead. I don't think we should be building coal mines when we're currently destroying the planet with the ones we already have. Having said that, I think the experience and understanding of the impact of mining for someone living in inner city Melbourne and someone who lives in Townsville are extremely different. 
and people living in Townsville are already feeling the brunt and the hurt and the economic disadvantage that comes with interests, business interests pulling out of the area. Um, and for them, the idea of a move to green technology isn't the promise of new jobs and opportunities. I think people who are living there go, well, those jobs and opportunities will be somewhere else. They're not going to be here in my town. Um, so I, so guess I that, think it's about well, understanding. So, so, yeah, no, I, I, it's a, a really excellent and interesting answer. I, I guess the, and not even a counterpoint because I'm not having an argument. Uh, I'm just interested exploring the idea. Having grown up in the country, yeah, yeah I understand how the National Party works, which yep. is the Liberal Party just leave them alone, essentially, right? They don't run. They might run a candidate, but they, in a general sense, as long as the National Party candidate is, you know. Yeah, half competent and doing their job and, you know, directing everything back to the Liberal Party. Yeah, they're running in conjunction with rather than in opposition to. Mm -hmm. Is there not some way that it would help the ALP to sort of have the inner city, you know, that part of it? You're not going to get the convoy. You could split it off into, here's your sort of, you know, that version of what they do with the country with the, Mm. uh, the National Party. You have some version of the inner city Labor Party versus the you know, more broad sort of church of the Labor Party. Yeah. I think you, I think that's not an impossible feat, but I don't think the Greens are the party to create that coalition with. It's very interesting. I could talk to you about this for a long time, but uh, we need to finish up and we've already moved studios. And um, I, so uh, I've already asked you what happens when we die. I've already, already yeah, asked you. That. Uh, we've um, uh, we We touched on the idea of how you thought you might be remembered or how you – you thought people were going to remember, but I do always ask this question, which is how would you like to be remembered? That is an incredibly good question. And one I hadn't thought about ahead of time. Um, I think it comes back to the, to what I said earlier about the way you made people feel. I hope I made people feel comfortable and happy and more powerful, not less. Um, that's what I try to seek to do when I'm writing and when I'm speaking and doing bits and pieces. Um, I like to arm people with information and have a discussion or a debate that doesn't involve making the other people, person feel small. Um, and I hope I do that for people in my own life too. Um, what is your greatest strength? Hmm. I really want to reel off all the things that I'm really good at when I'm playing with my kid but they're not probably the streaks that you're talking about. You answer the question. How have you want to answer the question? I'm really good at remembering all the names to the Transformers. Um, I know okay, all the Pokemon. <laughs> no, um, my greatest strength, I think I'm a good explainer. Um, I think I'm good at um, breaking down complex arguments um, to, a, to a level that makes people feel part of something, not excluded from something. And I think that's useful in the kind of space that I work in, in that kind of political issue space to be able to say, okay, this is really complicated and I'm willing to be the person who sticks up my hand and says, sorry, I don't get it. You're going to have to bring that down a level. I think I'm good at working with someone who is an expert to translate what they're thinking and what they're feeling into it, something that people can understand. Um, what about weakness? What, what's your, your, your weakness? Oh, which one do you want to pick? Um, there are so many of them. <laughs> uh, I think my greatest weakness is I show my very best self to the people who matter the least. 
That's because you've uh, you've come home awful. you've come home strong on that one though. That is <laughs> that one I relate to so much, and it it is the thing that gives me the most guilt in my life is mm. that often I save my best for those who aren't yeah. the people who deserve my best. My my yeah these calls sort of jobs. Sparkly. He's like you know, when you're in a meeting, yeah. he was like you can turn it on, walk in, be super sparkly for people you will never see again in your life. And yet I come home to him and sometimes he doesn't get the best. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the nature of my job is that often I come home and I don't feel like talking. Yeah. Whereas you don't get to go on the radio and go, yeah, don't care guys. Today, yeah. not feeling it. Mm. You're going to yeah. be rubbish. <laughs> yeah. I'm saving like, the best mm. version of me for my partner when I get home tonight <laughs> and for my pets and for my kids, you know, like, you don't, yeah, you don't get to say that. That's great. I love that. That's a really good one. There was this TV show called Heroes where one of the um, characters on the TV show Heroes, uh, he had the the ability to, so they're all superpowered people and he had the ability, his superpower was that he could steal other people's superpowers. So oh, that's a good one. Yeah, right? But he had to kill them to do it. Well, he chose to kill them to do it. I'm not sure. Oh, we all pay a price. In my, hypoth- <laughs> in my hypothetical, you do not have to um, kill anybody. Uh, to get their superpower, but you can take a superpower from anyone. And when I say superpower, I mean, you know, from an ordinary person. Is there someone you admire, something that you admire, something that you would love to be able to do that you could, you could uh, take for some, take from somebody else and have in your life? I uh, wrote my brain surgeon a card after the second surgery, a really, really long card and um, wrote like an essay on it. And I gave it to him with a bottle of wine when we went in to say thanks. And he looked at it and put it down. And I remember thinking, screw, like, screw you. Like, I know you saved my life and all, but like, I put a lot of effort into that. There's a lot of feelings on that card. You didn't even bother to read it. And then about 10 minutes into the conversation, he referenced something three quarters of the way through the card. And I realized he truly has a photographic memory. And as someone whose memory is not what it was now, oh, I'd kill for that. I would kill to be able to remember everything. I would kill for that amount of knowledge in my head. You're you're very good at answering these questions, by the way. I've never, I've never. Um, I, feel, asked, I feel like I've done a lot of I don't know. I've never. Well, you start with I don't know, but then you would come up with some really good answer. Oh, that's good. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> that, I'm that's just basically your approach. Think, your approach is time. I don't know, and then you're like, here's the best answer to that question. I've never, <laughs> I've never asked that question before. Um, in, in this podcast, but I really, I really, as it was coming what out, would yours I, be? as I was, oh, we don't have time for that now, but as it was coming out, I was like, oh, I think this is a good question. And then you answered it so well that that's definitely at least a lock for next time I do the podcast oh, well, as I'm one glad, of the regular I'm questions. Glad the first one's been good. And this is the final one, uh, which is uh, time machine. You get a time machine. Uh, it's a one, it's not a one way journey. It's a round trip. Um, you can go back to a moment in your life, relive it. You can go back to a moment in your life and change it. Ideally, it's one of those two things. I'd like you to relive a moment in your life or change a moment in your life. But if you don't want to answer either of those two, um, you can go back to a moment of history if you would like. I would. Oh, see, now it feels selfish to go back to my own life when I could like go and stop the Holocaust. As right? I said, I, I, I would prefer. Obviously, I would those sorts of terrible yes, things first. But I, I at would the prefer. purely selfish yes. level. And I would go back to 10 or 11. You know how the baby blues are supposed to hit day three or four? Uh, I was an overachiever, so they didn't hit till day 11, but they hit in a really big way. And I absolutely lost it and screamed at my husband and said, I'd ruined my life. And I would go back and I would give her a hug and say, it is the best thing you've ever done and ever will do. It doesn't feel like it, but it is.
Thank you very much for this. What can we plug? Oh, I've got nothing going on at the moment. Well, you have a book a that's coming out at some stage, uh, but it book, doesn't have a title yet. I've got, I've got a titleless book that's coming out about health stuff. Um, previous to, books? Previous books, Not Just Lucky, which is with Penguin, and The Motherhood, which is a really good gift for anyone who is about to have a baby, except do not let them read it before they have the baby. It's one of those <laughs> books that's terrifying before and reassuring after. Um, otherwise, I run an event series with my mate Claire Bowditch called Tea with Jam and Claire, uh, where we sing and, well, she sings, I don't sing, and give speeches and interview people, and they're on regularly all around Melbourne. Thank you so much for doing this today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. 